Sometimes during worship, I don't sing. I sing during worship, but sometimes I don't sing because I like to hear the voices, just to hear the people of God singing. And I was reminded of Psalm 133 as I was listening to your voices. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. For there the Lord commands the blessing of his hand. It's like oil flowing down Aaron's beard. Oil refreshes, softens hearts. It's a symbol of the Holy Spirit. It's like dew on Mount Hermon, <laughs> nourishing, giving life. It's good to be with the people of God, isn't it? How good and pleasant it is. There's a lot of places you could be, but here you are, the gathered ones, worshiping the King, learning about His assignment for you, so... Good on you. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. If you're a note taker, I have slides. I've entitled this morning's message, Made for Missions. We're going to look at Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Of course, this is Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed saying to one another, what does this mean? Pentecost was a day exploding with historical significance. I mean, after all, it is the birthday of the New Testament church. But it was also a day filled with missionary significance. What we see in this passage is that the church born on this day was unmistakably a missionary church. It was a church birthed in a global context. And I believe that this passage makes it absolutely clear that the church was made for missions. And because all churches that exist today, true churches where Christ is glorified, are a part of a long and sacred missions history that begin here in Acts chapter 2, they should understand that they too are made for missions Because the very same DNA that the Spirit of God planted in that church should also be in us. 
So this morning, we're going to look at three ways that Acts 2 demonstrates that the church that was born on this day was made for missions. The first thing I want to draw out of this passage is that the church was made to move, or you could say the church was made for movement. Remember what Jesus said to his followers in Acts 1, wait in Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, chapter 1, and while while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, For John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Wait until you receive the promise of the Father. I love that Jesus calls the third person of the Trinity the promise of the Father. Something special is going on here. Well, 10 days had passed since Jesus had ascended And suddenly, I want you to take that word suddenly and put it in your back pocket. We're going to pull it out at the end of the teaching this morning. But suddenly on Pentecost morning, the Holy Spirit descends in a new and powerful way. It's this supernatural encounter with the third person of the Godhead, and the world would never be the same. I want you to notice that his arrival was announced by three signs. First, the rushing wind that filled the entire house where they were sitting. So this wind blows into the house where they're sitting. And then secondly, tongues of fire that hovered over each one of their heads. Visible tongues of fire. And then thirdly, the ability to speak in unknown languages. Now it's the sign of the tongues that gets the most press, isn't it? It's the one that we talk about the most. But the signs of wind and fire, folks, are astonishing. And they're noteworthy, and they're teaching us something, and I want you to capture this today. I want to look at two Old Testament passages that these signs bring us back to, and they parallel when God moved into a new home. So God is moving into a new home in Acts chapter 2, and there's Old Testament parallels when God did the same, when he moved into a new home. The first is in Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 48, and it is when God moved into the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Exodus 40, 34 through 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, wherever the cloud was taken up, from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. So following Moses' dedication of the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, Jehovah moved in. He filled the tabernacle with his presence and there was a cloud and then we also see the symbol of fire there. There was actually physical fire that they saw. And I love this. The presence of God was so tangible and so weighty that Moses couldn't enter the tent. The weight of God. Glory is the Hebrew word kabod and it means weight. 
So get this, the, the weight of God is closing in, and it's so heavy that Moses can't enter the tent of meeting. And so throughout their journeys, we know that God would continue to show his presence by these physical signs, whether it was a cloud hovering over the tabernacle or a pillar of fire by night. Similarly, following Solomon's dedication of the temple, God gives a housewarming present. And his housewarming present is his presence, just like it was in the tabernacle. And his glory is manifested in the temple in such a way that the people have to fall on their faces. Again, the weight of God is present. And again, we see the cloud and the fire descending from heaven. Look at two passages here. Second Chronicles 5, 13 and 14. You can write it down and look it up later. I'm going to read it. It was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud. Think of that rushing wind running through the upper room. So that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. And then 2 Chronicles 7, we see the parallel of the fire out of Acts 2 here. Here's the connection point. 2 Chronicles 7, 1 through 3. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, there's a recurring theme here. They're praying, they're worshiping, and God is showing up. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The weight of God is closing in. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. His housewarming presence, presence, excuse me, in the tabernacle and also in the temple was his presence. We see the cloud come in. The glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle and the temple. We see the fire of God come down to consume the sacrifices. Now back to Acts chapter two. These signs, most notably the hovering flames, were now present at Pentecost. The cloud is a, a parallel to the rushing wind filling the upper room, but mostly we see this represented in the hovering flames that were above their head, and they portrayed in a new and powerful way that God had taken up residence in a new temple. This is so beautiful. God is not going to fill a place anymore. He's going to fill a people. He is going to take up residence in his own people. It's beautiful. The mediating presence of God, folks, would no longer dwell in a place. 
It would no longer be tied to a tent or a building or any single location, but to a people. God lives inside of his people, not in buildings. The church is not a building. This is a great gift from God, but this brick and mortar and wood and whatever, it's, it's not the church. It's a place that you gather. You're the church. I'm the church. The called out ones, the gathered ones, we are the church. Verse 12 of Acts chapter 2 the people in response to seeing these things ask a question. We're going to ask it a couple of times this morning because it's important. What does this mean? When we see these symbols, the, the, the cloud, it's more than a symbol, it's actually a physical symbol, in, in a physical cloud in the Old Testament and fire, and now in the upper room, it's also physical, but they're connected to symbols. When we see the cloud, the wind, when we see the flaming tongues, we should stop and say, what does this mean? Well, here's what it means. The temple of God was being franchised and mobilized for the Great Commission. God moved into his people so his people could move out. Temples, buildings, aren't exactly mobile, are they? I mean, there's companies that can take a building off its foundation and move it, but it's pretty rare and it's really expensive, and that's not how we move buildings around. We don't do that. We build a new building usually. Temples and buildings are not mobile, but people are. And so a new age has begun, and rather than inviting the nations to come to Jerusalem and see, the church was commanded now to go and tell. You see, in the Old Testament, we are told that the nations would come to the temple because they would hear about God's hand and his mighty outstretched arm. They would hear about his wonders, his miracles. They would hear and they would be curious and they would come to Jerusalem. Listen to Solomon's prayer in the dedication of the temple. First Kings chapter eight. So the temple is complete. Solomon is, is dedicating the temple. It's one of, one of the longest, not the longest, but it's close. One of the longest prayers recorded in scripture. 1 Kings 8, 41 through 43. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your namesake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, here in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. So this is a clear example of the Old Testament pattern of come and see. God's heart for the nations runs from Genesis to Revelation. We've talked about that a few times already. But in the Old Testament era, it is a come and see religion, a come and see message. God would display his wonders. God would pour out his glory. And the nations would hear, and they were to come to Jerusalem and see. But Pentecost has changed everything. So rather than inv inviting the nations to come and see, by the way, invite people to church, okay? I mean, <laughs> you can do that. 
but rather than inviting the nations to come and see the new temple, the church was commanded and empowered to go and tell the nations. Can you see that the birth of the church represented a new age? Come and see has become go and tell. I want to draw something out of this that I, I hadn't even thought about sharing this morning, but I can't resist it in this prayer of King Solomon. He knew that God's blessings upon Israel were not just for Israel. This could have been a very ethnocentric, egocentric time for Solomon. The living God, Yahweh, is going to manifest his presence in our midst in this temple. I mean, it was ornate, beautiful, beautifully built, representative of, of all of these characters, the characteristics of God, very detailed. And God gave those details. And there it is. And Solomon doesn't say, you must love us more than anybody. He says, this temple's not for us, God, it's for you. These blessings upon Israel are so that the peoples of the earth may know and fear you. You've blessed us to spread your glory. Yes, you love us, but you've blessed us just for us. The church was made for movement. No longer does God dwell in a building or a place or a single location, but he now indwells his people. Second thing I want you to note that shows that the church was made for missions is this idea that it was made to harvest. In verse one of chapter two, it says, when the day of Pentecost had come. Now, why did Jesus choose the day of Pentecost as the day when he would pour out his spirit on his disciples? Well, I think at least one reason is that Pentecost was a feast of harvest. Think Jewish Thanksgiving. That's what this was. Exodus 23, 16. God says, you shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field for the fruit of your labor. So what beautiful imagery here. Inaugurating his church on Pentecost was symbolic and significant. What better way to foretell of the ingathering of souls that would come through the church? It was a festival, a feast that was about gathering in. And this is how he births the church on the day of Pentecost. Again, a symbol of not the first fruit that would come in, but now souls that would be reaped for his glory. So the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in this extraordinary way was meant for witness and for world evangelization, for the harvesting and the ingathering of souls. And that's exactly what happened. If you read on later today, you'll learn that 3,000 people were harvested for God and given eternal life on the day of Pentecost, this feast of harvest, and the ingathering continues. What a beautiful image to birth the New Testament church on the feast of ingathering. What does this mean? 
Verse 12, that's a great question, right? It, it, the passage I read ends with that verse. What does this mean? Well, why did Jesus choose Pentecost as the day he would pour out his spirit in this extraordinary way? I believe the harvest of souls that happened on this day reveals the primary purpose that he sent his spirit. The reaping of souls. And I think this is important because unfortunately, Pentecostal power has for many people become more associated with speaking in tongues and signs and wonders rather than with the harvest of world missions. But this is primarily why he gave the Spirit to mobilize his church to harvest souls for the glory of his Son's name. The church was made to harvest. Made to move, made to harvest. Number three, was made to be multi-ethnic. Verses four through eight of Acts two. I'm going to read those verses again. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. They were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? The disciples were granted supernatural ability to speak in unlearned languages. So understand, this wasn't gibberish or merely a miracle of hearing. They spoke in diverse languages, the languages of the people. What does this mean? I believe it is a foreshadowing of the global multicultural nature of the church. The use of multiple languages signified in a vivid way the missionary purpose of the church. Acts 2 lists out these various nationalities. I'm not going to read them, but there's a long list there in verses 9 through 11. They were present at this first Christian Pentecost. And if you take some time to look at the geography here, these are people's from the north, south, east, and west of Jerusalem. Nations. If you were here last night, Gentiles. Distinct language. These are not just non-Jews. These are distinct people groups named right there. It's not just one big group of people that are not Jewish. They're mentioning of these distinct groups. Here's what Acts 2 is showing us. What does this mean? Christianity isn't a Jewish thing. It's not a Hebrew thing, it's not a Greek thing, it's not an American thing. The gospel is for the whole world, for all nations, all tribes, all tongues. If you were here last night, remember Jesus commissioned us to make disciples of all nations. One of the five commissioning statements of Jesus, there's five of them. Probably the most famous, Matthew 28, 18-20, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. All the nations are the people groups, the pantata ethne. They're represented here in Acts 2 by those different nationalities. Don't think nation state. Think these are people groups. Many churches have domesticated the Great Commission by leaving off the object. 
The Great Commission stops at making disciples. Yes, we are called to make disciples, but we're called to make disciples of all the nations. All the nations, once again, you were here last night, pontata ethne. Don't think nation states, geopolitical states like China, Argentina, Germany, Turkey. Think people groupings, distinct languages and cultures, the Pathan people, the Dinka people, the Fulane people, the Kekche, the Maoshe Shing, the Zaza of Turkey, the Loba, the Dongxian, the Choko, the Tadahumata, the Jumjum. Jesus commissioned his church not only to win and to disciple individuals, but to make steady headway in getting the gospel into every nation, every tribe, every tongue, to see that there's a viable, worshiping witness of Jesus that we call the church in every single people group, which means the goal of the Great Commission, folks, is not to try and keep up with the population growth rate. That would be awesome if that could happen. (laughs) We, We see that the world is exploding. We've got a population growth that is just unprecedented. And it would be wonderful if we could see a spiritual birth offset a physical birth so that we could keep up with the growing population of the world. We, should, we do win individuals, by the way. We don't win entire people groups. We win individuals. But we're not called just to try and win individuals and to keep up with population growth. We're called to make steady headway in reaching individuals in the context of every nation every tribe, every tongue. We're called to make steady headway. If you were here last night, we talked about this. Paul could have stayed in Corinth indefinitely because of the lostness and the needs around him. But he knew the mission of God as he drew it out of the Old Testament prophecies and said, we have been given a mission to take the gospel into every people group. I think a helpful illustration in understanding the difference between making disciples, period, and making disciples of all nations is to consider the difference between a pancake and a waffle. So if the goal of the Great Commission were just to win as many people to Jesus as possible, we might view world missions like pouring syrup on a pancake. Imagine the syrup represents the gospel. That's a pretty good metaphor, sticky and sweet. Pancake represents the world. And we might just begin to pour the gospel syrup, as it were, in one place in hopes that it grows and grows and grows and eventually permeates. You've heard the saying, bloom where you're planted. They think that's the Great Commission. You should bloom where you're planted, but again, that's not the Great Commission. If we all just bloom where we're planted, we'll never get the gospel to the ends of the earth, right? Okay. So imagine that, pouring the gospel syrup in hopes it'll eventually permeate. If the goal of the Great Commission were just to win as many people to Jesus as possible, we could do that. That could be a good model. But when we understand that the goal of the Great Commission is multi-ethnic, as is drawn out of Acts 2, and last night as well we talked about it, a better metaphor is to consider pouring syrup on a waffle. Now, a good Belgian waffle, I'm not going to talk about the kind you get at you know, the two-and-a-half-star hotel that you know, they're a little squishy. I'm talking about a really good Belgian. Have you ever had a really excellent Belgian waffle, anyone? Oh, my gosh crisp. There's extra sugar in the batter, and when you put it in that waffle iron, and there's butter, and you close that lid, it caramelizes, right? And it's got a crusty, sugary, you know, those edges. It creates those barriers. So, sorry, it's, it's almost lunchtime. <laughs> so, anyway, a good Belgian waffle 
has these ridges and edges, barriers, if you will. And if you want to permeate a good Belgian waffle with syrup, you can't just keep the syrup pouring in the middle. You actually have to, kids know this. You want to get syrup in the entire waffle, you have to move it around and intentionally pour it into the square. You might get some outlying squares, but the ones on the edge and in the corners are probably not going to get the gospel. That's the way it is with the Great Commission. There's language barriers, cultural barriers, all types of barriers that keep the gospel spreading naturally from one to the other, which is why we must go and tell. We must pour it in. We must get the gospel syrup, as it were, into every square, into every single people group. Jesus is not interested in a culturally monolithic church, folks. He wants a multi-ethnic church as Pentecost signified, and he will have it. The inauguration of the church at Pentecost signified multi-ethnicity. We went there last night. The consummation of the church in Revelation is consummated in a multi-ethnic context. So the beginning of the church in Acts 2 and the consummation of the church is in a global context, beginning and end. So I want to wrap this up here by giving you a a challenge. I want to talk about extraordinary power for an extraordinary purpose. I want to try and bring this message home for you and show you how I think it is relevant for Osterville Baptist Church. Number one, so if you're a note taker, this would be a good time to pull your notes out. If you're not, that's okay. The power promised by Jesus in Acts 1-8 is an extraordinary power. I believe this is power beyond the infilling of the Spirit that happens in the new birth. Now make no mistake, when we trust Jesus, when we believe, the Spirit of God takes up residence in us. Paul says in Ephesians, when you believe the gospel having received it, You were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit that guarantees your inheritance. That's a great verse, isn't it? When you believed, which is a work of the Spirit too, (laughs) he fills us, he deposits in us the Holy Spirit. He doesn't put us on layaway. You know, sometimes something's on layaway and you you never... Fulfill your payments. Do they still have layaway these days? Walmart. Wilco had, you remember Wilco, anybody? Okay. Wilco had layaway. I put stuff on layaway as a kid, and I'd forget it was on layaway, and you know, and I don't know what they ever did with it, because I stopped making my payments, you know? There's more than that. It's a deposit that guarantees our inheritance. He fills us when we believe. The Spirit of God takes up residence in us. So we are filled with the Spirit at the new birth, make no mistake. But consider the effects of the power that we see here in Acts chapter 2 and then throughout the whole book of Acts. They were clothed with power. Clothed with power from on high. There were signs and wonders. There was this unbelievable courage that God gave them to, to risk their lives for the sake of the spreading of the gospel. So the promise given by Jesus in Acts 1 is extraordinary power, above and beyond, you might call it. Number two, this promise that the disciples would receive power when the Spirit came upon them, I've already talked about this a little bit, 
but was a promise given to sustain the completion of the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. Primarily, not only, but primarily the power given by the Spirit was for the sustaining and the completion of the Great Commission. Just look at the context of Acts 1.8. Tarry in Jerusalem, wait, until you receive power from on high, and you will be my witnesses. The word is martis in the Greek. We get our word martyr from that. You will receive power to lay down your lives and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. What was the power for? The power promised was for witness to the world. Not to be a better you, although that happens when the Spirit fills you. Not to live a better life, though that happens when the Spirit fills you. Not just so that you can be sanctified, that's what happens but so that you might be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. This power was given that God's people would lay down their lives for the sake of his name and renown. And I fear that a, lot, a great deal of our Holy Spirit teachings are all about us. Spirit-filled life. <laughs> and that's part of it. Paul talks about it. But it doesn't end there. It's for witness to your neighbors and for world evangelization. Number three, observation. Again, bringing this home for Osterville, Baptist. The task of world missions is not yet complete. We talked about that last night. It's not yet complete, which means that the promise of this extraordinary power to sustain and carry forth the work, folks, is still valid for us today. If that's why he gave it, so that we would be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, and that's not yet done, then it is still valid today. So what history teaches us is that crucial gospel breakthroughs have come during times of extraordinary outpourings of the Holy Spirit. If we look in the book of Acts, and then we continue through the church age, we read these amazing accounts of what a manifestation of the Spirit of God. Something happened here in New England a long time ago called the Great Awakening. It was unusual. It was powerful. 200 years ago, the Spirit of God closed in, filled. And we know that there was an incredible witness. Jonathan Edwards one of the leaders of the Great Awakening put it like this, from the fall of man to our day, the work of redemption in its effects has mainly been carried on by remarkable, extraordinary communications of the Spirit of God. Though there is a more constant influence of God's Spirit always in some degree attending His ordinances, yet the way in which the greatest things have been done towards carrying on this work always have been by remarkable effusions, outpourings at special seasons of mercy. So he always attends his ordinances. He's in us. He illuminates our hearts to understand the scriptures. He gives us power to be sanctified. He gives us 
that conscience to know what's good and evil, all those things. Yes, He's always there, always in us. But the way in which the greatest things have been done in terms of gospel expansion, says Edwards, have been remarkable effusions. I love this, special seasons of mercy. Special seasons of mercy. Mercy is God acting um, not because of us, but because of His Son. So that we, we don't deserve mercy, right? We ask for mercy. We're asking God to withhold from us what we deserve. That's what mercy is. And of course, we know He preserves justice by punishing Jesus in our place. But this idea of special seasons of mercy, the idea is we don't deserve this, God. But would you please give us that special season? So Edwards believed that from time to time, God moved in extraordinary ways in the history of the Christian movement. They were uncustomary, dramatic at times, and we've called them times of revival or awakening or reformation, and Pentecost was the first of one of these incredible outpourings. And because the task of world missions is not yet complete, folks, I think we should be praying that God sends another one. A special season of mercy. A fresh effusion of power. Power to be witnesses. Here in New England, a place desperately in need of the gospel. But to the nations, places with no, there's no Osterville Baptists and 7,000 people groups, folks. Nothing like it. We need a fresh filling so that we can be witnesses here and there. So this morning, let us not come to this text with just mere academic interest in some distant, unrepeatable event. We should come believing that we have much to gain from studying this passage. Much to gain in understanding what the church was made for, made for missions. Made to move, not made to be stationary. Made to be multi-ethnic. Made to gather in the harvest of souls. I mentioned that word suddenly. Would you take it out of your back pocket now? He appeared suddenly. I think that speaks of his mercy. This shows that the Holy Spirit is free and sovereign. He's God. He does what He pleases, when He pleases. He is not bound by our timing and techniques for how to get His power. We don't conjure the Spirit up. He moves suddenly. But I will add this. When we see Him moving in the book of Acts, and throughout church history, one thing is clear. His people are praying. There's a mysterious and wonderful correlation between the effusions of the Spirit and His people's prayers. I don't quite understand it. But if we want to see extraordinary outpouring of the Spirit that makes people scratch their heads and say, what is going on in New England? Is this a Great Awakening 2.0? <laughs> what is going on in this church? What's, what's happening at Osterville Baptist? Then I know we need to pray. 
We need to ask God to move, to fill. And with that, I'm going to close us by looking at a text in Isaiah chapter 64. We'll be in Isaiah tomorrow morning as well, Isaiah chapter 6. But I want you to look at Isaiah 64 right now. I think it is a great way to close out this teaching. Let me give you some context here. The nation had reached a, a desperate state. Only an invasion could, from heaven could meet their need. And the prophet knew this. He knew there was no earthly prescription for their malady. And so he prays. And he recalls the wonders of Sinai when God showed up and gave the law. And the mountains shook. And there was fire and smoke. Again, those pictures of God, those metaphors that we often use. But they were real. (laughs) It was real fire. There was real smoke. God was on the move. And he prays for a supernatural intervention like that again. And he pours out his heart in confession. He's praying. And then he says, oh God, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That you would burst forth from the skies and visit us. How the mountains would quake. The consuming fire of your glory would burn down the forest and boil the oceans dry. Your enemies would learn the reason for your fame and the nations would tremble before you. So it was before when you came down and you did awesome things that we did not look for, things beyond our highest expectations and how the mountains quaked in your presence. The prophet says, you visited us at Mount Sinai. We need you to do that again. He says in verse 7 of the same chapter, there is no one who calls upon your name who rouses his spirit to take hold of you. Isaiah gives what Samuel's wormer described as an incomparable definition of prayer. No one calls on your name to lay hold of you. What a vivid picture. The the suppliant, the prophet, Isaiah is saying, God, if no one else is going to pray, I will. And I'm going to wrap myself around you and I'm not going to let go until you answer. Until you give us your presence. So what we need, what I need, is a fresh Pentecost. A fresh effusion of the Spirit of God. It's what Osterville Baptist needs. He attends his ordinances. He's here, he's in us, he's moving in ways we see and don't see. But what we need to ask for is something extraordinary. And not because we deserve it, but because of his mercy. For the sake of his name, for the sake of gospel expansion here and to the nations. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. And we come to it this morning, God, not just with a a mere academic interest to, to learn stuff. That's important. 
We should love you with our mind. We should know you intellectually. But we come, God, for more than that. We want to know you personally. We want to know you in power. Spirit of God, you move suddenly. We can't conjure you. There's no techniques that we need to practice that will force your hand to show up. You're God. You do what you please and when you please. But we know that when we see you moving, Spirit of God, we see people praying. And so make this a praying people, God. I pray that Osterville Baptist would be filled with men, women, and children who pray. And they pray that you might get glory. They pray for power, not for power's sake, but they pray for power that they might be stronger, bolder witnesses in this community. Witnesses to the ends of the earth. God, let there be another great awakening here. Why not? Why not in our day and in our time? We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.